I've known Pastor Tim for about 20 years. We've gone through the same program together at Gordon-Conwell, and it's such an honor for me to be here. I'm thankful to him for allowing me to be here. I know he could not be here today. But hello, everyone, and uh, it's so great to see you. It's so great to see so many of you here today. And I'd like to ask you to please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, if you haven't done so already. Luke chapter 13. We'll be looking at the parable of the barren fig tree this morning. I'd like to pray. Father, on Father's Day, we thank you for our dads. I thank you that you've enabled me to be a dad. But most of all, Father, I look to you as my father, and, uh, and we all together just say to you, Father, thank you. You're a great father. You're the best father ever. And you, Father, know us better than anyone, and you know exactly what we need right now. It's not necessarily what we want, but we need things that we're not even aware of. They're in your word. It's what you spoke. I felt led by you that this was the word you wanted to speak today. So, Lord, I just ask you, please, let your voice be heard. Let your truths be given. Lord, let everyone here, men, women, boys, girls, let everyone here this morning know what it is you, their Father, wants them to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had an education recently on what it means to be an Italian in America. Not that I am. My parents were both born in Ireland. I'm first generation. But I married Debbie, and when I married Debbie, I married Debbie Masterberti. And this morning, Debbie's here. Uh, my brother-in-law, Frank, and his wife, Maura, my father-in-law, Frank. Debbie's mom was a garippa, and they are really Italian. And you who are Italian, you know what that means. My education came by way of a PBS documentary. I don't know if any of you saw this. It was a few months ago now, called simply The Italian Americans. And I ordered the DVD. I got it. It was, it was so great because it captured all the nuances and idiosyncrasies and what makes an Italian in America just unique and special. And there was one story in that documentary that really gripped me. It was a story about what happened in Little Italy at the turn of the last century. Now, this isn't the Little Italy we all know in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. This is the Little Italy in San Francisco. It turns out that the skilled fishermen from the coastal cities of southern Italy made their way over to San Francisco because of its fishing and its ports. And they were so skilled that Italian fishermen were routinely hauling in more fish than all the other boats combined. It was just in their blood. They'd been doing it for generations. And these families that went out there to fish formed a strong community in San Francisco that became known as Little Italy. But it was a community that was devastated along with the entire city at 5.12 a.m. on April 18, 1906. A 7.8 magnitude earthquake decimated San Francisco. 80% of the buildings collapsed. 3,000 people died. 
The fires burned for weeks in some cases. On April 18th, later in that day, in the midst of all the chaos and the turmoil, few people, I'm sure, noticed the Italian fruit peddler guiding his horse-drawn cart through the rubble of the city. It was stacked high with oranges. He was a fruit peddler. He was a fruit peddler when he was a kid. But at this point in his life, he's a banker. He's the president of a bank. His name is Amadeo Giannini, the president of the Bank of Italy. And stacked and buried underneath that pile of oranges, hidden away so no one would see, were all the funds that had been in his vault. You see, that morning, right after the earthquake occurred, he had one idea. Looters will be out in force. They will be rummaging through banks and stores and getting whatever they could. So he had to disguise himself as a fruit peddler, go from his home in San Mateo to his bank, get into that vault, get all the cash out, load it up in his cart, and send it back home which is what he did. He was able to save all the money. See, that money represented the hard work of all of those Italian fishermen down at the ports. Amadeo had known, because he served on the board of other banks, he had known that other banks did not loan these people money. They were bigots. They were prejudiced against the Italian immigrants and wouldn't want to loan them money. So Amadeo, in 1904, just two years before the earthquake, decided, I'm going to create my own bank to loan these people money. So it really wasn't a big bank at that time, but it was the only bank the Italians could go to. The day after the earthquake, Amadeo Giannini went back down to those ports with two barrels. He set up a barrel here, a barrel here, and put a board across the top. He brought with him his cart filled with the cash. And he decided the day after the earthquake to start making loans. He didn't ask the fishermen for any kind of credit history. He didn't ask them for any kind of loan documents of any sort. He simply found out that if they needed to rebuild their business or rebuild their homes, he asked them to please shake his hand. And when they shook his hand, he was looking for calluses. And the calluses were their collateral. If they had calluses, he gave them a loan. And on their word that they would repay that loan. Do you know why? Because when he was 15 years old, he was a fruit peddler on those docks and in those ports. And he saw those people and how they worked. He knew their character. And he knew what a handshake meant in that community. And he started doling out loans based on calluses. Because of that, the Little Italy section of San Francisco was the first one to rebuild. The Italian community thrived. Amadeo Giannini's bank began to open other branches because it was prospering because those people were repaying their loans. And he made even more loans. And more branches were opened, not only in San Francisco, but all over California and eventually in other states. And in 1930, the name of the bank was changed to what we now know as the Bank of America. That's the story of the founding of the bank I bank at, and I would imagine a number of you bank at. It started with a man shaking people's hands, looking for their calluses. On Father's Day, there's one characteristic of fathers I want to share with you. 
And that is the characteristic of what fathers are looking for. My father was looking for something. All fathers are looking for something. Our heavenly father is looking for something. Verse 6 of chapter 13. He began telling this parable. Stop there. The parable is in the context of greater stories. And he began telling him this parable. Something precedes this, and it is tragedy. We are in the midst of a tragedy in our country right now. I so appreciate Ian leading in prayer for the AME Church in Charleston. What a horrific, horrific, horrific thing. Evil at its max. This is more than racism, as ugly as that is. This is more than murder, as horrible as that is. This is pure evil. Evil that has its origins in hell. This boy and all those who think like him are motivated by Satan himself and the demonic forces that get people divided and hateful. What's fascinating about this story out of Charleston, though, is, is in light of this horrible injustice, in light of this, this terrible, terrible tragedy, there are no riots in streets. There are no people out there demanding, demanding, demanding justice which would be justifiable. It would be justifiable. I'm not saying that. But instead, there is even a higher response than that. There are people standing up in hearings saying to that boy, I will never get to hold her again, but I forgive you. On the way here on CBS Radio, they said, coming up at 9.50, is it possible to forgive someone who kills your loved one? Listen in for the report. I didn't make it to the report. I got here before I got to listen to it. But the world can't imagine. This is on a completely different level. Forgiveness and grace. The word of God is coming out of that tragedy. The gospel it has an opportunity to be preached out of that tragedy. Justice needs to be done. That boy needs to be dealt with according to what the law says. Absolutely. And everybody like him. But how much greater beyond that is the fact that the grace shown by these people is giving an opportunity for the world to hear about Jesus Christ. That is the greatest thing of all. There were tragedies in Jesus' day. And it, too, gave an opportunity for the gospel. The six-mile distance from Bethlehem to Jerusalem was a distance that was going to be uh, used to convey a tunnel of water into the city, which was desperate for water. Pontius Pilate was building an aqueduct that he needed to have funded to get the water from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Pilate decided, I know how I'll pay for it. I'll get the money from the temple treasury. So Pilate, the Roman governor of Israel, decides to go into the treasury to get money to fund the building of an aqueduct for water from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. People from Galilee, which was the revolutionary part of the country, there was no way they were going to let this happen. So they stood there at the temple grounds and forbade Pilate's soldiers from coming anywhere near the temple, and the soldiers just decimated them. 
beat them up, killed them. Right in the temple courts, their blood was spilt. Jesus said, do you think they were worse sinners than anybody else? We're all in the same boat. You need to repent. The tower that fell on the people in Siloam, 18 were killed. He said, they need to repent. No more than you need to repent. On the same occasion, there were present those who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what about these people in Charleston? The the word to the world is these people are in heaven because they had a life in line with God. Everybody needs to repent and have that kind of life as well. It's an opportunity for the gospel to get out. It was in this context he told the parable. A certain man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. Israel is a fantastic place. I've been there seven times. My dad lived there for for two years. And it's an amazing place in terms of weather. It's the size of New Jersey, and yet is incredibly diverse in its climate. In the south, they will only get maybe four inches of rain a year. In the north, you could get 40 inches of rain in a year. There's some parts that are absolute deserts. There are other parts that are extremely fertile. There's a very small window in Israel just north of Jerusalem that is ideal for vineyards. Vineyards uh, are very special places. The soil has to be just right. The sunshine has to hit your, your fields in just the right way. When a farmer would build a vineyard, he would remove first the rocks, and there were a lot of them. An ancient rabbi said when God made the world, he had two bags of rocks, One bag he dumped on the world, the other bag he dumped on Israel, (laughs) because there's just rocks everywhere. And so you got to get all the rocks out, and when they extract the rocks from the soil, they use those rocks to build a wall around their vineyard to protect it. They use those rocks to build a tower in the midst of the vineyard to have a watchman to keep out predators, to keep out thieves during the harvest time. You would hire professionals to care. These wouldn't just be the harvesters. These would be horticulturalists to prepare the soil, to care for the vines. It was an amazing, amazing operation. But here's what's fascinating about this story. In the midst of a vineyard, there's a fig tree. Why do you need a fig tree in a vineyard? This is a vineyard. You're looking for grapes, not figs. Why put a fig tree there? A fig tree is a sight to behold. It's not a little tree. You might have seen little fig trees, but fig trees in the Middle East are massive. They're huge. Their leaves are broad. Vines grow about three or four feet off the ground. The harvesters are bent down all day long. Their backs are aching in the sun. Imagine what this looks like to them. The leaves blocking out the sunshine. The heat of the summer in Israel is brutal. It's Sahara heat that comes up from Africa. It is unbelievably bad. 
You could go underneath the leaves of that fig tree and the temperature gets cut by as much as 20 degrees. You're in the shade. Look at the serpentine roots. Look at, look at the shape. Look how flat they are. Look how high they get. They are perfect benches for broken backs. The, the, the harvesters could just sit there and lean back against those roots under the shade of that tree. And the tree comes with its very own vending machine. Every branch has figs on it. When I was growing up, I loved Fig Newtons. Fig Newtons and a cold glass of milk? Mm, nothing like that. They're out there. They're, they're hot. They're getting shade. They reach up. They just pull down the figs. Not only that, this, this was like the best break room ever. It also had a medicine cabinet. The leaves of fig trees were often used as bandages. We have Band-Aids. They didn't have Band-Aids back then, but if you cut yourself, you would put a fig leaf on your wound and wrap it with a vine, and it served as a great bandage. Not only that, the figs themselves were very medicinal. If you have an issue that requires prunes, (laughs) skip the prunes. They taste horrible. Eat a fig. It tastes good and does the same thing, okay? Now, one of the contemporaries of the New Testament is Pliny the Elder, first century A.D., Here's what he wrote. Figs are restorative, the best food that can be eaten by those who are brought low by long sickness and are on the way to recovery. They increase the strength of young people, preserve the elderly in better health, and make them look younger with fewer wrinkles. Figs are cosmetics as well. So the reason that this man wants this fig tree in his vineyard is because his workers will be happy. If he wants to hire people and they look at his vineyard and there's no fig tree, they don't want to go work for him. But they see a huge fig tree, they say, yeah, I'm going to work for that guy. What a break room they've got. So that's why he wants this fig tree here. He's looking for something, though. Every day he comes and he's looking. He's looking for fruit. He wants to know that this is a fig tree that's going to produce figs for my workers He came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? A fig tree in a vineyard is a waste of time if it doesn't have figs. My father was looking. Fathers in general are looking. My father ran away from home when he was 15 years old. He was in Ireland and ran away. He went west, made his way around the world, eventually became a British officer, uh, lived in Israel for two years in Nazareth at the time of the British mandate when Israel became a nation, went to fight in the jungles of Malaysia. When he got out of the British army, he wound up in New Zealand and he needed a job. They were building a huge dam. They needed carpenters. He went to a store. He bought a toolbox and a bunch of tools. He had never picked them up in his life. He walked on the job site. They said, are you a carpenter? He said, I am. And they hired him. And all he did was watch the other guys and just do what they did until he learned to be a carpenter. He came to America, started in San Francisco, went to Chicago, wound up in New York, and met my mother, who grew up 10 minutes from him in Ireland. They married, and and I was the firstborn. My dad's whole life, he's looking. 
When I was about 10 years old, I remember, he would work all day long in heavy construction, which is out there on highways and stuff, really hard work. He'd come home, have dinner, and go back out the door to renovate houses at night. It was the only way he could provide for the family. But around 10 years old, he started taking me. At first, I didn't do anything. Then after a while, he started giving me little jobs, sweep the floor, pick that up. Here's a hammer. Here's how you, here's how you hit a nail. Here's a screwdriver. This is what you do. This one's a flathead. That one's a Phillips. Here's the difference. He would take me out because he was looking. After a while, my father got his own construction company in New York City. They were doing relatively large jobs. Sometimes he had more than one job going at a time, sometimes four or five. He would send me to the other jobs that he couldn't get to, and he'd say, run those jobs for me. He taught me how to read blueprints. He was looking. There came a night when I was about 18 years old. I had just become a Christian. I was in the living room of my house in Whitestone. My dad walked over. I was seated on the sofa. He had a smile on his face, a look of confidence, and I found out what he was looking for. He said, Kevin, I want you to have the business. I'm giving it to you. We'll talk tomorrow about legally what we have to do, how we have to set all this up, but it's yours. That's what he was looking for. And at that moment, I knew what I had to say to my dad. And I didn't know how I was going to say it because I knew what it would do to him. I said, Dad, I can't. Why? I've given my life to Jesus, and I feel like he wants me to be a pastor. My father did not understand that at all. It made no sense. I could see the crushed look in his face. He turned his back. He started walking up the stairs. He stopped. He turned around. He said, are you sure? I said, yes. And he continued on upstairs, and I sat in that living room crying. His heart left his job at that point. He kept working, but he wasn't motivated. What he was looking for wasn't going to happen. Three years later, his business was bankrupt. In September of 1992, my dad died. It was two months later, I finally became a senior pastor of a church. He never even got to see it. Here's what dads are looking for. Dads will teach their children how to ride a bike, how to hammer a nail, how to drive a car, how to work really hard because they want to provide for their child security in life. They want to know their child will be taken care of because of the skills they show them. They nurture, moms nurture. Sometimes moms are just much better at that part. But dads are equippers and preparers, and they are looking to set their child on a path of safety and security. That's what my father was looking for. This man who owns this vineyard is looking for his children, I have no doubt. This will be their vineyard. They will have safety. They will have security. They will have income. But my fig tree isn't bearing fruit. What's going on? It's got to bear fruit for my kids one day. Why is it even using up the ground? Here's what it says in John chapter 1 about when Jesus first came to the earth. John chapter 1. 
He came to his own, and those who were his own didn't receive him. Here's what we don't understand when we're born into this world is we belong to God. We don't know it. Nobody, nobody necessarily always tells us. I didn't know this until I was about 18 years old. But you belong to God. He's your father. You have a father in heaven. The night my earthly father wanted to give me his business, I had to make that choice because my heavenly father had another business for me to take. And I had to choose between the two. And our heavenly father comes to his own through his son And those who were his own don't receive him. And there's a haunting question that Jesus asks in Luke 18 about when he comes back to the earth. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he comes looking, what will he find you doing? Will you be about your father's business? Remember when Jesus was 12, that's what he told his parents. I have to be doing my father's business. Or will he find you doing something else? This is a parable that cuts right to the heart of what it means on Father's Day to either disappoint or make your father happy. And I'm talking about your heavenly father. My father was disappointed. But I had to press through. I had to do what I knew that I had to do. Look what it says in verse 7. He said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Three years he came. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. For three years he was looking too. And near the end of his ministry, as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to carry out what his father was looking for him to carry out, do you understand that Jesus' whole life was about his father looking and his father wanting him to do something and him doing it? He said, I only say what I hear the father saying. I only do what I see the father doing. And it was such a difficult task to carry out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, Father, if possible, if there's any way for me to not have to do this, please, please, I don't want to have to do this. And by the Father's silence, he was saying, there's no other way. This is what I'm looking for you to do. And Jesus carried it out. And here's Jesus near the end of his life heading toward Jerusalem to carry it out when he sees a fig tree by the side of a road. Look what it says in Matthew 21, verse 19. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it. He was looking for fruit. And he found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Fruit. The outcome of why you're there. The fig tree in this vineyard could not have had better circumstances. Tell me what other fig tree has walled-in protection? What other fig tree has paid horticulturalists making sure you've got all the fertilizer you need and everything you need? This fig tree had the best setup of any fig tree. Anybody who is connected to the Lord through Jesus Christ, anybody who's serving God, you've got it the best. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Word of God. You've got the ability to pray. You've got the horticulturalists. You've got everything. You've got the wall. Satan said to God, I can't touch Job. You've got a wall around him. 
But if God doesn't see fruit, what's the point? How do you bear fruit? Don't sweat the details. We worried about, should I, should I make that decision? Should I buy that house? Should I get that job? Should I? Pray about those things. But it's the greater picture. Are you doing his business? Are you part of his kingdom? Here's what Jesus said in John 15. He said, but this is my, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It was the summer of 1992. My dad hadn't been feeling well. We didn't know what it was. He went to a doctor. The diagnosis was cancer. My sisters and I were determined that we were going to do whatever we could to get my father the best treatment options available. And so one day, my, one of my sisters and I drove my dad to Duke University Medical Center in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Scientists at Duke was working on treatments for exactly the kind of cancer that my father had. That was where we were going to go. We drove there. We had an appointment. We met with the doctor. He looked at my father's test results, came back in the room, and my father was very blunt and to the point. He said, because you could tell by the doctor's demeanor, it wasn't good. He said, Doc, how much time do I have? My father looked fairly robust at this point, still had color in his face, and his, his weight hadn't diminished. But the doctor said to him, Mr. Brennan, you have two or three weeks. And his eyes welled up. And we got in the car, headed for a long trip home, and there was a lot of silence. And then my father broke the silence, and he said, Kevin, how do I get to heaven? And because of a decision I had made in that living room, that I was going to do my heavenly father's business rather than my earthly father's business. It touched my father in a way that he could not ever figure out, but he knew something was there in me that he had to know about. And in that car, he asked me, okay, tell me. Tell me what you have. Tell me how I can have it. And I got to share with him the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And two or three weeks later, just like the doctor said, my father died. But when he died, I knew he was in heaven. He knew he was going to heaven. That was fruit. That was the fruit that my other father wanted me to bear in my earthly father's life. You're a father this morning. You know what I'm talking about. You're looking for stuff in your kids. It's why you do what you do with them. You want them ready for life. You want them that when you're out of the picture, that they'll be okay. That's all you want. Your fathers were like that with you. It's how your heavenly father feels too. He's looking. This is the only parable I know of. If you find one, let me know. It's the only parable I know of that doesn't end with a conclusion. It's open-ended. We don't know how it ends. Look. Verse 8, and he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, and for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. 
And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then cut it down. And the question is, well, what happened next year? Did it bear fruit? Did it get cut down? We don't know. Jesus doesn't finish the story. It's the only one like that. Do you know why? I think he wants us to finish the story. He wants us to finish it in our life. By this time, next Father's Day, what is the Father going to see when he looks into your life? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to ask the worship team to return to the platform, but I just challenge you today on Father's Day, your Father is looking And I'm talking about your heavenly father. It takes more than life to be living. Success means you're bearing fruit. When Jesus went to Jerusalem to fulfill what his father wanted, it was by dying on a cross because the father wanted to be reconciled with me and with you. And it was the only way to have his perfect sinless son bear my guilt, my sin, upon himself at the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a power that gave me a brand new life. On that night in November 1976, When I told the Lord I was sorry for my sins, that I believed Jesus died on the cross for me, the power of the resurrection of Jesus came into my life and changed me forever. That's what the Father's looking for today, to be reconciled to you, for you to give your life completely over to him. If you're here today and you've never done that with your heads bowed and eyes closed, just acknowledge that to God right now and say, I want to. I want to be reconciled with you, Father. I want to fulfill what you're looking for in my life. If that's you, put your hand up. Anyone like that? Thank you. Any others? Thank you. You can put your hands down. You who raised your hands, I'm going to be up here in the front in a moment. Love to have you come and I'll pray with you, talk with you. But it's very simple. Just tell Jesus. Thank you, you died for me on the cross. I'm sorry for my sins. Tell the Father you want to be reconciled to him, that you believe he raised Jesus from the dead, and ask him for a brand new life. He'll do that for you, and you won't regret it. As Ian leads in this song, just sing this song as a prayer, not a song. Sing it as a prayer of giving your life completely over to God. And then I'll be back to close us in prayer. Lord, here we are with open hands and open hearts and open minds. We have nothing to offer but willingness. We're willing. We're willing, Lord. We're willing that you would come and take over our lives completely and entirely. Lord, you know where it is that we need your help with our tongues, with our minds, with the things that we've been doing that we're, we're regretful of and even shamed of. See them all. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our sins. 
bring us to a place, Father, that when you look at us, you're delighted. You're so happy. We just want you to be happy. We want you to enjoy how we live our lives. And so give us the kind of lives that would do that for you. We surrender completely. We surrender completely. In Jesus' name, amen.